Hello, it's Phil here. You know that I'm really interested in a life of purpose and I really love meeting people who are living a life of purpose. And Nicole Dyson, the founder of Future Anything and a tremendously interesting and exciting educator is exactly one of those people. I can't wait to share with you over the next three episodes of this special series of the Game Changers podcast, her life of purpose. Um, I can't wait. I'm excited. Let's go. Before you start your conversation with today's Game Changers special series guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our special series sponsor? Thanks, Adriana. Of course I can. Man Cave Academy provides unique training programs that are designed to share the Man Cave's experience from working with over 20,000 teenage boys across Australia. Learn more at themancave.life. That's themancave.life. Let's go. Hello, Nicole. How are you? I am excellent, Phil. How are you? Look, you know, not too bad for an old bloke. Not too bad for an old bloke. Um, it's June uh, when we're recording. It's cold and grey and wet outside in the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy, and I haven't had <laughs> today. But that's all right. We're 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 gonna we're gonna work on through that. Um, where where are you today, Nicole? Oh, look, I'm in sunny Brisbane, so I can't complain about the weather because I think we get 280 something days of sunshine, and rarely does it drop below 22 degrees. So um, it suits me perfectly because I think I'm probably solar powered. So having that regular sun uh, keeps me going. There we go. Well, why don't we why don't we start with your with, with your life? I think we're going to follow a little bit of thing in this series. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna look at the stages and phases of your life. You're a proud Queenslander. Where did where did where did it all begin? <laughs> Um, so it all began on the Sunshine Coast. So I was born at Nambour Hospital on the Sunshine Coast. Um, and my mum's family are based on the Sunshine Coast, but my dad's actually from Melbourne. So we watched the AFL, uh, not the rugby league growing up. Which club did he barrack for? Okay, so look, this is a contentious issue in our family. My father is a very, very proud Collingwood supporter. I mean, stickers on the back of the car, has every single piece of like, possible premiership gear that he could get his hands on um, and to his great disappointment I support Hawthorne so look it is a sensitive topic in our house I'm pretty sure he raises it at every significant family occasion um, that his greatest disappointment in me is that I don't direct to the pies. Well look Collingwood Hawthorne as long as you're not a loser and you follow Carlton like Adriana de Prado then everything <laughs> will be okay. Um, I'm still yeah, I'm, st- I'm, st- I'm still learning about AFL. I'm, everyone tells me that I need to um, develop my character further and, and adopt a team, but I feel as though a lifetime of uh, of supporting the Waratahs through years and years and years of loss has given me enough character already. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> probably. Hey. Um. So so it starts up in Nambour. Tell me about growing up. It does. Yeah, look, I was the eldest of five. So there's 11 years between me and my youngest brother. So I don't know, like I think anybody who's been the eldest child in the family knows acutely what that experience is like. I think your parents' expectations rest solely on you to kind of deliver in life. So, you know, we, my parents, my mum was a stay-at-home mum. And I think anybody who's got five kids, I don't know how you'd fit anything else in aside from raising them. And dad um, worked in sort of an engineering space. So he'd been in the Air Force and had sort of worked on planes and then had worked in sort of agricultural engineering and stuff growing up. He tried his hand at real estate and stuff as well. So we lived on the Sunshine Coast for a little bit, moved to Melbourne and, and lived there for a period of time and then kind of settled in Brisbane. Um, and I sort of spent 
pretty much year two onwards living in Brisbane. There's a bit of an entrepreneurial background that you're coming from, really, in, in terms of your family. I mean, it's it's a large family, but you've also, there's a bit of movement there and, there and there's a family that are trying a few different things along the way. Did it feel like that growing up? Did it feel like that life was a, a bit of an adventure? It definitely did. We, we moved quite a bit. Um, my grandmother sort of was, had her own real estate agency on the Sunshine Coast and in her time, it was almost unheard of, I think, for women to sort of go out on their own and start their own businesses. And she ended up having one of the most sort of successful practices on the Sunshine Coast. And I remember growing up and, and really looking up to her, like just not quite understanding how this, you know, powerhouse she raised. Um, she separated from my grandfather and sort of raised my mom and, and her siblings whilst also navigating starting this real estate business on the Sunshine Coast. And I do remember reflecting on that as a young person and, and have continued to growing up around um, how incredible that feat was to be able to juggle all of those things. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Grandma, grandmothers are interesting. Um, I've told the story of my grandmother before in a different series of this, but you know, it's, my grandmother sort of walked across Poland, got on a boat and went to meet my grandfather who'd gone to Fremantleland to pick fruit two, three years earlier. In the 1920s, you know, they, they came. They were, they were Jewish folk, and they were they were running away from persecution in Eastern Europe at the time. And you know, she, Nana was four foot nothing, and, and all life and spark. But you know, my mum, she was a doctor, um, and her father, through her childhood, encouraged her to do what she wanted and to become a doctor. It was almost unheard of. So, as they called them mm. in those days, a refo, you know, a refugee mm. from dire circumstances to come to our country. They certainly would have been considered white folk in those days. And to come here to build a life, to become a doctor. Do you know, she was sacked for being pregnant with me. Can you imagine that? Yeah, wow. Can you imagine that? I mean, look, I can, oh, look, I can understand people looking at her and, and, and questioning bringing me into the world because, you, know, <laughs> you know, she probably could have done better that way. Uh, if only they knew. <laughs> if, only, if only they knew. But, you know, it's um, when I think about our country, um, we have come an enormous way in my lifetime and your lifetime in, t- in terms of us thinking about people and place and planet and who belongs and who's part of it. I note that we still have this disgusting habit in our country of locking up refugees in concentration camps, which yeah. just appalls me. Absolutely, it just offends me enormously. We have extremes like that still that we still need to attend to. And of course, our, our treatment of our Indigenous folk, we, we, it's still just not good enough. But on the other hand, we have trailblazers like your grandmother, like my grandmother, like my mother, you know, who are able to build for us a more inclusive society, a more exciting society, a more dynamic society with opportunity and so on. When you were growing up, did you feel as though you could do anything? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I remember, like, I definitely felt like in, in my house, academics and achievement, there, there was like a big responsibility to kind of invest in education and make that a priority. I think my mum having sort of both of my parents sort of finished up at the end of year 10 and growing up, there was this real focus for me on doing better than that. And I always think that that's quite ironic. So I think my parents did a fantastic job of, of raising five kids. Um, but I think for them, as most parents do, they always just wanted that little bit more for, for their kids. And one of those things was they really wanted us to sort of finish school and go to university and have that professional career. I think that they could see where the world was heading from from a qualifications point of view and how valuable education would be. So growing up, um, 
school was very important and performance at school was, was, was something that was so valued in the house. It would be come home from school, do your homework. And I was a swimmer growing up. So, you know, my responsibilities were to perform in the pool and to train hard and then also to perform at school and to work hard. And, and I, those were really important for, for my parents and also became really important to me, I think, in that growing up experience as well. It's interesting how life concentrates us in that sort of way, isn't it? And that focus on academics is absolutely essential in that school space, isn't it? I mean, these days, at game changes and at school for tomorrow, you know, we, we, we have our concerns about the way in which examinations and assessment and in their current form dominate. But push that to one side because that's about the mechanics as much as anything. Mm. If we don't grow in our in our knowledge and our skills and our dispositions and our learning habits, if we don't excel as we need to academically, it 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 makes it harder, doesn't it? I mean, it's not impossible along the way, but it does make it harder. Yeah. Look, I think growing up, I mean, I went to school with um, lots of young people that were and I swam alongside lots of naturally talented, so naturally intelligent and, and naturally talented people. I wouldn't say that I was gifted in either area, but I think one thing that was really pressed upon us as kids was just to work hard. And if you worked hard, you'd get where you needed to be. And so, you know, when I think about our education system and perhaps I agree, like the emphasis we place on external testing and examinations as a metric for performance. For me, it's always been what's your disposition towards learning that, that sits underneath that. Um, do you love learning? Do you love knowledge and sort of engaging with new things? And are you willing to like work hard to get somewhere? And, um, and even though I, I might not have been the most naturally intelligent or gifted academic nor swimmer in the pool, um, I definitely valued hard work and, and those incremental moments of, particularly in swimming, because you're like working your butt off for like 0.01 of a second to get better. And I think that that value around incremental growth was something that I've, I've certainly carried with me moving forward. And something that when I work with young people, I say it's not about, you can't necessarily get to the end straight away, but you can make small steps to get there if you work hard enough and you take time to acknowledge like those little moments of growth along the way. So... Let's talk about doing better thing because you've started to talk about it already. You, you, you've noted that, that it was important to you that you were doing better. And I, and, I, and I wonder whether that's the thing at the heart of your disposition towards learning and, and work. And again, in my family, we had and we still have a saying that hard is good, you know, that, that, that mm. the embracing hard work sort of sits at the core of everything, everything that you do. I wonder sometimes whether in the way we think about character that we privilege the character that's growing through adversity um, more than the character that's growing through other circumstances and whether we should. But there's no doubt that being formed in the, in the crucible of hard work certainly does something to you. What did it do to you? What, what did it mean to do better? What does it mean to work hard? What, why was that so important? Oh, look, I think that, you know, working hard and performance is like a double-edged sword, right? So there is one side of it where I do, like, I have a value where I believe, like, all the good stuff is on the other side of hard stuff. Like, really, the great things in life come on the other side of maybe stretching ourselves beyond where we think we're capable or into a place of being a little bit uncomfortable. So, um, you know, that that is a, a formational value that I have that underpins a lot of the process. But um, that can also beget pressure and, you know, growing up in an environment where swimming was very competitive and also there was certainly a lot of, a lot of pressure at home. I do think that you have that risk of uh, what that does to a young person or to any person when they have those external influences 
and that pressure that sits around performance, particularly when, as we know, performance is so subjective, like it's reliant so much on other environmental factors that sit around it. And so it then becomes the conversation around, well, what happens when you don't get there or when you don't get that growth and what do you do in that moment? But, but certainly growing up, I remember coming, like my, my dad was just this, <laughs> I don't know how he did it, father of five and, and working, you know, crazy hours to provide for a family and Look, we certainly didn't have a lot of money growing up. I remember um, having like toast for dinner on a Friday night and thinking that it was a super novelty. But but now looking back, I realise that there are other things at play for maybe some of those novelty meals growing up. But they always endeavoured to make sure that we had opportunity. And, you know, he would get up at four in the morning and drive into the pool and then he would sit at the pool with a book and like wait while I trained. And then he would take me to school and, and, you know, I would go from school straight to the pool again and I always remember having those conversations with him after I'd race or, or after an event. And um, I, it was always in the, the reflection process or, or how we decompressed after an event that I think w- was the most value for me. It was like, well, how did that go? How did it feel? Um, it wasn't, my dad was always my greatest champion when it came to getting a result, but I knew that whether I came first or last, he was going to be proud of me. And I never doubted that. I never had any worry about, you know, what that was going to be like for him. Um, I think on the other side, my mom was was probably a little bit more competitive. She had been a swimmer and a dancer growing up. And so <laughs> her competitive nature probably was a different narrative at the end of a competition. You know, it would be what time did you do? Where did you come? And she would know sort of all of the other key players in my age group and want to know how they placed and how they performed and, I think it was interesting for me to watch those two opposing narratives play out around performance and opposing ways of, I guess, uncovering and unpacking after an event or after a performance in that space too. And and look, there's merits to both, right? So that competitive nature from my mum definitely pushed me, you know, to perform better. But at the end of the day, when, when things didn't go well, I certainly did feel a, a great degree of like responsibility and pressure to perform and I would remember getting quite nervous about if dad and I were in the car and I knew mum was going to ring to find out how I'd gone if I hadn't performed good enough in what I thought would be her opinion I remember being quite apprehensive about those conversations and having to navigate that yeah it's tough isn't it I'm not sure I had a parent who was the support side I think I had two parents who were on the competitive and, and, <laughs> and performance side probably mum was a little bit more on the support side certainly my grandmother was on it was she Mm. she was the she was the cheerleader for me around that sort of space let's stick with this two competing narratives or or two complementary narratives or because i i think there's something interesting there and we'll have educators listening right now and parents listening and people listening who will default naturally to one or the other so there'll be Mm. the nurturers out there who'll be absolutely horrified at the amount of pressure that might be placed on a young person and who will want to de-stress, de-stress, de-stress. And then there'll be those who are inherently com- competitive and results-driven who'll be sitting there and they'll be talking about tough love and they'll be saying, you know, mm. but actually what you're doing is you're harming a child's opportunities by, yeah. by being too soft on them. Let's just talk about that for a moment, shall we? Because that's an interesting point, isn't it? Yeah, I, I do. I And it's a delicate balance whether you're um, in an education role or, you know, in a parenting role is, do you uh, yeah do you nurture or like where's the merit in having those high expectations and sort of encouraging young people to strive as well I I do feel like it's a really delicate balance between the two and where you find that right moment for me I think 
my relationship with my father has, has always been much stronger than my mother. But if I look at the way that I've perhaps pushed myself throughout my life, I, I probably do owe her a debt of gratitude for instilling in me perhaps that sense or that belief that perhaps there was more for me. I think she always saw the potential. And so her push came from a, I, I know you've got more in you than this. Um, and so it, it's interesting, you know, what, what those narratives do from a, a relational point of view and how it structures the, the relationship. But then um, is there a greater good when it comes from where you go with some of those expectations or that narrative as well? Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting one, isn't it? You know, if, if we think about that impact, I, 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 know, I know certainly, and you'll know this from having worked with many chalkies over the years too, teachers, most teachers are inher- inherently perfectionist around what it is mm. they do. And, and every parent, as you know, every, there's no rule book is there. I mean, we, we just get it wrong all the time, don't we? And if you're a teacher and a parent, you know, all, all you ever see is the mistakes that you make along the way and you don't see the, the stuff that works. And there can be stuff that you do to help shape the character of the children in your care, which is tough in the short term, which will bear that long-term um, fruit. But everything comes with a cost, doesn't it? Everything comes with a cost. Yeah, and I watch the way that, um, you know, I watch the way that I have conversations with young people and I I can feel myself defaulting to, like, my mother's narrative sometimes in, yeah. you know, in identifying opportunities for improvement but before I've taken the time to acknowledge growth. And I think that maybe the delicate balance is, is holding space to let young people know that where they're at is great and, so, and to acknowledge where they've come from. And then I think there's also from that point, great power in, in offering that vision of stretch and where they can go. But, but perhaps the vision of, that vision around stretching or expectations or where they could be loses that relational value if you don't take the time and space to acknowledge where they've come from and acknowledge you know where they are now and actually take the time to create that encouraging positive relationship in order to then step into that stretch from yeah look I, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more it sounds so good in theory I'm just so hopeless at doing it <laughs> in practice you know because I just I, do, I, I default I, I default to who I am and I, I think this is one of the interesting things about I, I guess the difference between personality and character if we listen to the sort of really strong thinkers around personality in the world you know your Jonathan Hates or your Jordan Petersons or people like that who've done the research into this essentially they'll tell you that you know you can emphasize different parts of your personality but what your personality is, is fundamentally your personality. That's that's what it is. Character, on the other hand, you can grow. So in other words, the behaviours which express, if you like, your values in action, the way you live your life, the way you learn, the way you live, the way you lead, the way you work, we can develop those over time. I think in it, if I... I hadn't expected that this conversation might go in this direction. So it's, I've, I've, been quite, quite, I've been quite reflective as we're talking here. But I'm sitting here and thinking, you know, I was, as, a, as, a, as a little boy, I was, I was very, very bright. And I got away on natural talent until mm. I reckon I was 10 years old. And at 10 years old, I made a decision to work and to work harder. Um, than anybody else and that 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 was my dad was responsible for that and he pushed me really really hard nothing nothing less than 100% wasn't good enough mm-hmm. and if I didn't get 100% in everything you know there was always something else that needed to be done somewhere around about the age of 15 to that hard work I made a decision about service and committing my what I did for the benefit of other people and people can mm. judge me on whether or not I've done that successfully or not but 
in each of those areas, they, they were not things that came to me naturally and I had to work at them over the years. But now people would probably, who know me closest, would say those are two strengths of mine. Um, and they weren't things that necessarily came to me naturally in my behaviours to start with, whereas my personality is my personality. You know? So it's, 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 it's an interesting play, isn't it, about what we can bring out in children and, and what we can bring out in ourselves and, and how we think about it. You know, I'm very grateful to my parents now in a way that I wasn't very grateful to them when I was younger. You know? <laughs> but then maybe that's... Maybe that that comes with uh, with with grey hair and wrinkles. You know, you sort of you sort of get a little bit you get a little bit of that happening. Um, talk to me about school and your journey through school. So you're swimming and you're working hard. What subjects mm. were you good at? What did you enjoy at school? Where did that take you? Yeah. So when I finished grade seven at the sort of the local Catholic primary school that I was at, I got a scholarship to one of the private or girls schools in Brisbane. And and that was quite a big deal because there's no way we could have sort of afforded that educational experience if it wasn't for that scholarship opportunity off the back of my swimming. So I went to high school as kind of the scholarship kid in a world that I'd probably never experienced before. And it was probably, you know, that moment where I realised the difference between those that have and, and those that have not. Now, you know, some of my peers were rocking up to school in these <laughs> pretty flash cars and I would go for, for play dates at people's houses and, and their houses would be, you know, their foyers would be the size of my entire home. And I remember maybe perhaps being opened up to a world that I didn't necessarily knew existed um, before that. So high school for me, I, I, I love sort of English and like I was a prolific reader as a child. My dad would take me to the local library if we didn't have a competition um, on Saturday mornings and I would go to the library and you could get 12 books out. Like that was the maximum number of books you could borrow. So I would go and borrow 12 books and then I would read those 12 books during the week and we'd return the next Saturday and I'd hand those ones in and then swap them for another 12. And I remember quickly reading through like all of the young adult fiction and sort of starting to tap into some of the, the novels and, and the books that my dad was reading, probably only in sort of grade eight and grade nine. I was reading, you know, quite extensive texts at that age. So I loved reading. I loved writing. I loved drawing um, as a kid. But my parents and my mum particularly had this uh, expectation or this vision that the science subjects were kind of the smart subjects you know, like your high maths and your science subjects, they were, they were the subjects you should be shooting for because they were the ones that were going to get you the good degrees and the good jobs. So I remember um, a lot of pressure around choosing those subjects in 11 and 12. So I did your physics, your chemistry, um, your maths B, <laughs> like I chose all of those subjects. And, and, um, were they, and were those subjects you wanted to do or you did them because... No. So I put my foot down. Like I, I got, yeah. I got to fifteen. I put my foot down, and I just because second generation immigrant, son of a doctor, yeah. uh, you know, mum wanted me to be a doctor, you know. So it was like, you know, the maths and the science and all that. And I went, no, no, no. Yeah. So, and I, so I, I loaded up with English and history and and Greek yeah. and Latin. I did Greek and Latin simply because it was the only way I could avoid doing maths and science. Because um, <laughs> I, I just, I just, and of course, the reason, the reason why I didn't do maths and science I just didn't like my maths and science teachers it's not that I didn't mm. like maths and science yeah it's funny isn't it so you, 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 you're you you're a very beautiful person at that age and you're going on and doing the strong STEM subjects tell me what your senior certificate years were like in Queensland 
Yeah, look, I think my parents and certainly my teachers would have described me as quiet and, and very compliant um, and, and kind of diligent. Like those would have been the adjectives to kind of describe me as a student, which is very probably funny for people who know me now because those would, would not be the adjectives that would be chosen. So things have changed a little bit. Um, but I but did 11 and 12 but, every but three that's... years. But that's that character development I was talking about earlier. That's that's yeah, what that is, you know, yeah. the the the, the yeah. introvert and the quiet person, yeah. the bookworm who's busy absorbing stuff. Yeah. You know, your weakness becomes your strength, and then your yeah. original strength becomes the foundation of your new strength. So, and you can learn to do that, can't you? You can learn to yeah. play a public sphere. But I bet you still love it when you can curl up with a book by yourself. Oh. Yeah, look, it is my favourite thing to do um, is to, to grab a good book and just completely switch off and I lose myself in, in books. As you, Yeah, like I've got a, a bookshelf that's like four metres by three metres just stacked um, and it, it is my favourite thing. I think, I don't know, I, I didn't have a lot of confidence, I think, as a young person as well and that probably played into certainly maybe how I didn't assert uh, myself around what I wanted to do. Um, subjects wise and, and my parents separated around about that time when I was going through senior and it was quite messy at home and so school for me was a bit, school and swimming were I think an escape from some of the complexities at home and yeah I think I was in the pool you know 20 to 30 hours a week and I did 11 and 12 over three years and because of the flexibility of, of that extra year, it meant that I was coming and going from school and the pool and the gym quite a lot um, and had perhaps a little bit more independence about my senior years than somebody who was doing their, their, full, their full load, I think, at that time. Where did you get to in swimming? Where did swimming take you? Uh, look, I, I got to sort of that state level um, pretty in, in sort of a few different areas. Like I loved butterfly, 100 butterfly, 200 butterfly, I loved the 400 IM, but I was just a terrible breaststroker, like just horrific. So I would do the first two legs of the IM and then have to sort of, I would lose so much ground in the breaststroke leg and have to play catch up for the freestyle at the end. And I think, you know, swimming for me, even still now, like jumping into the pool, my favourite feeling in the world is jumping into an empty pool and then rolling over under the surface of the water and kind of just seeing that, crystal clear surface of the water with the sunlight shining through where there's no movement um, and I find you know my my meditation is actually following the black line if I can't sort of lose myself in a book then being able to jump in the pool and completely switch off from everything around me and um, and follow the black line is is still like a really yeah it, it is it's a meditation and a safe place for me to kind of escape yeah it's interesting where we find our places and spaces to switch off and so on yeah, of course, of course you liked Butterfly, didn't you? Of course you did. You, 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 of course you chose the hardest stroke um, to Bloody do. Bloody overachievers. Yeah, it's, of course you did. Of course you did. Um, I, think it, it, I think music is probably that space mm. for me, which is my natural space of meditation. Over the years, I got into the habit of music becoming the background to everything. And, and mm. the last few years, I've got back into putting music on and doing nothing else and just listening to music. You know, it's, it's one of the things I like about going to a pub or going to a concert hall and listening to a band or listening to an orchestra or something like that, where you're yeah. just focusing on the music and you lose yourself in the music. 
And that mm. I think that's the closest thing I can come up to with the, the black line thing is, as my son and our producer, Oliver, would say, we, we, we have the genetic makeup of a brick when it comes to um, <laughs> water. With the, we come as we sink pretty quickly. Uh, we're not great swimmers at all, really. Um, um, yeah, funny, my dad wasn't a great swimmer either. I think that's why he yeah. was so um, convinced that that was something we needed to learn as kids. And, and I remember... Yeah. He would say later when we go to the local pool and we'd be hanging out in the deep end, there'd be this sense of nervousness for him. Like if, yeah. if we got into trouble, I think he'd be a little bit worried that he wasn't as confident in the surf or in the water. Yeah. Um, so that was always something that he wanted to... He tells this story of um, taking me to the pool for one of my first swimming lessons and walking me over to the side of the pool and um, the swimming teacher taking my hand and then um, promptly throwing me in the water kind of as my first lesson. And dad was sort of horrified on the side of the pool and said, you know, <laughs> what's going on here? And the teacher was like, no, no, her natural instincts will kick in. Like she'll jump up to the surface, like give her a moment. And, and he stood and watched. And, you know, I was obviously a bit of a slow learner at the time and didn't sort of come up to the surface of the water. And eventually he jumped in and kind of pulled me up. And I've used that metaphor actually a lot in life. I think sometimes we do that for teachers and students. We kind of just throw them in the deep end and we assume that because some people do have the natural ability to claw themselves up to the surface and to the side of the pool, we make an assumption that the skills that exist for others to do the same thing without realising that the anomaly are the ones that can get up into the side and that we actually need to scaffold our experiences for those that can't. Uh, this is such a lovely conversation. There's so much in what I'm learning from you today about the formation of the individual through childhood and through education, about the relationships of character apprenticeship, about the different ways that we react to the different stimuli and the different influences in our lives, about our growth, about all sorts of things. I think it might be a good point for us to pause at this point because I'd really like to come back and have a chat with you next time about your education and your formation as an educator, because I think that would sit really, really nicely. So do, do you mind if we, if, we, if we just pause it there and we come back next time, Nicole? Let's do that. Excellent. Let's go. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.